Hey there, my name is Eric Massey. I have a Master of Divinity from Abilene Christian University. I've worked as a healthcare chaplain and as a young adult minister, and higher education was never something that was really emphasized when I was discerning my call to ministry. Honestly, I never thought I would go to seminary. Thankfully, and to my surprise, seminary was one of the best decisions that I ever made in my whole life. It textured and colored my faith in a way that I never thought was possible, and I cannot imagine my faith without it. Which has led me to wonder if there's a way to talk about how seminary isn't the scary, antiquated, or unnecessary thing we might think it to be. On this podcast, we'll introduce you to seminary professors talking about their areas of expertise to introduce you to topics that you might hear in seminary, but not necessarily every Sunday school class. So, whether you've been in ministry a long time or are just now starting to discern a call, or just like hearing about theology and history and higher education in the Christian world, this is probably the podcast for you. This is Seminary Isn't Scary. On this episode, we talked to Dr. Doug Foster, scholar-in-residence at Abilene Christian University's Graduate School of Theology. He is most famous for his work in the Stone-Campbell Restoration Movement in America, which is the movement that the Churches of Christ come from. And if you don't know this already, this is the group of churches that ACU is affiliated with. Doug and I talk specifically about this movement, its history, its people, concepts, and implications. Some of you may not know anything about this movement, and that's totally okay. We think there's something really valuable about listening and learning from the stories and traditions of others. As a small sidebar, you may notice a difference in audio quality for this episode. Since we started this project, the world has been set upon by a deadly virus, and we were forced to record this from a distance. We still think it's a great episode, and I hope you enjoy. So, Dr. Foster, thank you so much for joining us. I just want to start us off by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks uh, very much, Eric, for inviting me. Well, um, I've taught at uh, two, uni- two universities, Lipscomb University in Nashville, for, for seven years, and then was at Abilene Christian, still at Abilene Christian since 1991. I serve now as a, the scholar, a university scholar in residence. My wife, Linda, and I have been married for 40 years and have two children. Our son, Mark, lives in China and works at a school there. And our, our daughter, Mary Elizabeth, is uh, in San Antonio, works for UT San Antonio. And we've actually been to San Antonio this week, last week, to help with, their, with our two grandchildren's online schooling. So it's been pretty busy, pretty interesting. Yeah, no kidding. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to, to join us today. You've, um, you've been studying church history for, for a good long while. So what brought you to start your career in studying church history? And what brought you specifically to studying the, the Restoration and Stone-Campbell movement? Yeah, that's, I think that's a really good question. Um, I think for a long time, my impressions of history generally was my impression was that it was not relevant, that it was not interesting, that it was not something that uh, really had much importance in, in my life. 
I think a lot of that, I'm, I'm sorry to say, may have come uh, through some teaching that I had maybe in high school and even in college that sort of gave me the impression that it was dull and not very useful. Um, sometimes the, the teachers were a little were a little dull. Uh, I hate to say that. I hope I hope I'm not that way myself. But but I think the first time I really caught on to the the formative nature of knowing one's history was when I was in graduate school doing a master's degree. I had to take a church history course actually, and um, and I was not happy about it. It was a required course, but what happened in that class was that for the first time, I think I began to realize that I had a history, that my own religious body had a history. And, and lights began to come on in my head. Oh, wow, that's the reason that this group of people or this movement thinks and acts in this way. Uh, and where I had been under the impression that you know, there was no logical reason for people to believe that way or do that way. And it, at some point, it dawned on me that I, I had a heritage, too. I had a history, too, the religious body that I'm part of that, sh- that shaped and formed me in Christ has a history, too. And so that just sort of captivated my mind, and so many things began to fall into place to make sense. So when I finished the master's degree and decided to, to move on to PhD, church history was the direction I wanted to go. I no, I love that. I I think I can attest having had you in class before that uh, you are you are definitely not a a a dull teaching experience. Um, but but on that note, tell me a little bit about what you're doing now because you're you're kind of moving away from from teaching as much as you you did, but you're still pretty active in in your role as a historian. Yeah, um, as I said, after my retirement in December of 2017, the university asked me to to become what, what's called scholar in residence, and uh, that basically it's it's worked out with each person. There, I think there are a couple of of us now at uh, Abilene Christian, and it's worked out individually with each person. So, the arrangement that I have is I'm I'm continuing to teach at least one course a year, and I'm mostly in the Graduate School of Theology, although next semester I'll be actually teaching a course, a, a co-taught course with Stephen Moore in the English department there at ACU on uh, issues of race in American literature and film. But um, so I teach one course a year, but I'm also doing a lot of research and writing. The first thing I did after I uh, became scholar-in-residence was to finish a long-term project that I'd been working on already then for several years, which was a biography of Alexander Campbell, who's one of the major uh, founding leaders, I guess you could say, of what's called the Stone Campbell movement, uh, the, the movement that brought about Churches of Christ, Disciples of Christ, Christian churches. Those are the three major streams in North America, but then has become a global movement. And so... Um, have done, have continued to do some some work in that area. But one of the things that has really become a major focus of work and study for me in the last several years has been issues of race and particularly the idea of white supremacy that Christians have so often, well, I mean, it has been white Christians that basically created the ideology and have, have 
continue to perpetuate it in this country. So I'm working on a project with several other people now to do a study of race and racism in Christian colleges and universities that are affiliated with Churches of Christ. So those are some of the things that uh, are going going on as far as my continued work, the teaching and the research. Uh, those are the, the areas that I'm focusing on right now. <laughs> well, I, I think it's good to, to hear that you're keeping busy even out of retirement. Yeah, I'm not sure what retirement means. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I guess the uh, the idea of sitting in a rocking chair is, is appealing, but I haven't been able to do it yet. <laughs> Not yet. Well, we, we hope for that, <laughs> for you to get some rest in there. Yeah. Um, but I think, so we've been talking a little bit about this, and I think especially from from someone perhaps who might have a story similar to mine, where I came to ACU with very little knowledge of, of who the Churches of Christ were, what the Restoration Movement was. Could you give us... Uh, a little bit of background about what we mean when we say the Restoration Movement or the Stone Campbell Movement or the Churches of Christ. Who are we talking about there? Yeah, that's a, that's really a really good question. And of course, there are quite a number of movements within Christianity that have come up through the centuries. The Stone Campbell Restoration Movement, and it's called a Restoration Movement, and there are, there are quite a number in, in church history of movements that were trying to restore something that they believed had been lost or had been obscured um, that was very, very important. And so sometimes it's called the Restoration Movement, although there are a lot of Restoration Movements. And so I, I think historians prefer to be more precise and call it the Stone Campbell Restoration Movement, named after two of the major streams, I guess you'd say, of uh, Reformation in, in American Christianity, one led by Barton Stone primarily, the other led by Thomas and Alexander Campbell, especially Alexander Campbell became the main leader of that. And it, it, be, it arose in America in the early 1800s. And quite frankly, there are a number of, uh, of impulses, movements in early America in that period to try to recover things that had been lost, to try to bring something uh, into perfection, to, to, to move into a place where they believed they would be more pleasing to God. And this is definitely one of those movements. Now, what you see in the Stone Campbell Restoration Movement is a deep desire to restore, and this is the term that Alexander Campbell would eventually use, the ancient gospel and order of things. And so the ancient gospel, in many ways, um, I've just finished uh, a, a study that comes out of the biography of Alexander Campbell, but in many ways, the center of that ancient gospel part was what he believed was the restoration of a doctrine and practice that had been lost, and that is immersion of believers for the remission of sins and salvation. So that becomes sort of a central piece for Campbell and for the movement. And when you um, when you talk about immersion, you're talking about uh, a, a baptismal practice. That's right. Yeah, that, that's right. And you know, the term bap baptism is the term that most Christians would understand. But Campbell came to the conclusion that biblical baptism was invariably immersion uh, of believers. 
and that that would in fact be the point where a person receives remission of sins and salvation. Now, baptismal theology, uh, there's a wide range of baptismal theologies throughout Christianity. He believed in his own experiences and studies that, that this was something that had his understanding of baptism as immersion for the remission of sins was something that had been lost or at least obscured in much of Christianity. Now, I will be very clear, he did not believe, although at times he got kind of frustrated that not everybody just agreed with him, <laughs> um, he, he did not believe that that only immersed people, only immersed followers of Christ could be saved. And it gets a little complicated. I just recorded a speech uh, for Restoration Day where I go into some detail of his ideas on these on these things. But that ancient gospel becomes sort of the central piece, and that's a place where a lot of other followers of Christ uh, disagreed with Campbell, and it became in some ways kind of a, a I don't know what the right term is, it was, a, it was a, uh, a focal point of criticism or attacks, and he also made it one of the most important parts of what he would be doing. But that's the ancient gospel piece. The ancient order is how the church is set up. Uh, how it uh, is very, very congregational. There's no extra congregational structure that's biblically biblically authorized. And um, the simple worship service, for example, for, for many years in the earliest days, of course, most, most churches of every kind, especially in the frontier of America, didn't have access to instruments as far as uh, accompanying their worship. But the idea that Campbell and, and others were promoting was just a simple worship, congregational worship, and one of the pieces of that was um, simple singing without accompaniment. Parts of the movement eventually would, would not make that a major piece of their, their teaching, and, um, and so that, that's not maybe necessarily a, a major, major piece of his theology. But that ancient gospel and order of things, uh, as, as taught by the scriptures as he understood them. And you have to understand also that his ideas are very much formed by a certain kind of, um, I guess you could say, I'll use this with some some reservation, uh, enlightenment view of knowledge. How do you come to knowledge? It's a very intellectual. Uh, it's a very fact-focused and... Uh, I guess you could say the the, the uh, you, you come to it by studying the scriptures thoroughly, by analyzing and push, pulling together all of the pieces of data, and um, and that intellectual set of propositions is really all important. That intellectual s set of doctrines, precisely articulated, and then practices carried out with with precision, that's what certifies you. I think. Uh, in his mind, ultimately, as a true Christian, which at some level is, is very problematic. He knew better than that. He knew that it was more than just intellectual uh, conclusions that saved a person or, or actions done in a precise way with the correct in intellectual conclusions. But it seems that, that his, that's the main thrust. And so experience uh, was not very important. So that movement began, it grew before the Civil War to be one of the ten largest religious bodies in the United States. The Stone Movement, the Campbell Movement, 
came together in the 1830s. Their churches were very congregational, so there was no big um, meeting to say we're going to merge. It was just in the local areas where those churches existed. In many cases, they just agreed to come together and work and worship as one congregation. The Civil War was a major factor in in producing tensions that would that would lead to an eventual division in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and it's a complex story. But 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 that that movement today, first division produced a separate group known as Churches of Christ which is the, the body that uh, is affiliated with ACU, another body that was called Christian Churches or Disciples of Christ, a second division in the, 19, uh, in the 1900s, culminating in the 1960s, pretty much produced a, a, another division that has today produced what's called the Christian Church Disciples of Christ and the Christian Churches Churches of Christ, because many of those conservative Christian churches still use Church of Christ for their local congregation. Today, that movement, because of mission work, exists all around the world. It's a, it's a global movement. In fact, a, a group of uh, scholars a few years ago produced a, a Stone Campbell movement, A Global History, uh, the book that was published by Chalice Press that tries to give a sort of an introduction to the history of and the existence of the Stone Campbell churches around the world, many of which today are very much indigenous. Uh, they may have begun as mission churches, but in many cases today, there are no missionaries in many of those countries, and those churches are now perpetuated by indigenous workers. Hmm. That's a sketch. I, I could have gone in a thousand different directions. <laughs> no, I, uh, I definitely... Give a little bit. I definitely sense there's a lot there, obviously. And I think um, one of the more sort of ironic things about this particular movement and the movements that kind of become an offshoot of it um, is how, at least from my perspective, and you can correct me on this, ingrained in America the movement ends up being and how, for example, I come I come from – a place where I didn't know much about the Churches of Christ or, or any of, uh, of what you were just talking about. But looking back, after having a little bit of a grip of some of the history, I realized that I have had contact with folks who can trace their lineages back to this movement, even though I didn't realize it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in that, what I would be curious to hear from you is, are there, are there certain things that start to pop up? You've talked a little bit about them before, but especially as it, as it presents itself as we approach sort of more contemporary uh, constructions of the church in this way, are there, are there lines of thought or theology or practice that sort of help define these movements a little bit? Because you've said already that, that we tend to be very, very congregationalist, and so there's no overarching structure uh, that sits over the congregations. Is there some other way to tell that, you know, you're, you're dealing with somebody from this movement? (laughs) Yeah. One of the, one of the things that we tried to do when we were writing the global history of the Stone Campbell movement was to try to identify those things. I think, I think I'm, correct in saying that one of the things would be, and it's not unique to this movement by any means, but one of the things would be a very deep commitment to the scripture, scripture only for 
the things that we believe and practice, again, uh, that can be understood in different ways because if you see the scripture as primarily an intellectual book, that is a book of, of facts, of course, certainly it has, it has facts, truth in it, but if you see it primarily as that, then the impression is that our duty is to master the facts of Scripture. And I think that that's been, uh, again, not unique to us, but I think that that's been a characteristic of many of our churches, that the main thing was having everything precisely articulated. So a list of doctrines, a list of beliefs, propositions, uh, that you can say very precisely, that that that's really sort of the certification of who is a who is a true Christian. I think that sometimes even despite that sort of intellectual emphasis, the dedication to Scripture um, for people who have good hearts, I think that the Scripture it's described right uh, by Paul as a two-edged, double-edged sword. It, it cuts cuts to the heart and. Those with uh, with good hearts and minds, even even sometimes with the the idea that intellectual activity is the primary part of Christianity, it it, it cuts through and it changes them and, and transforms them into the image of Christ. And I think that's the point of Christianity. But we have had this deep dedication to Scripture. And I think for the most part, it's been one that has been focused on getting things getting things correct. I think another piece is, is baptism. The, the, the deep sense of the importance of baptism, which frankly I think is, is true throughout the history of Christianity. Um, it's only in fairly recent times, uh, relatively speaking, I guess you'd say the last two or three hundred years at max, when what historians, church historians, called the evangelical movement began to focus more on an individual experience rather than being, uh, individual experience being the key to, to being saved, to being part of the family of God, whatever. And, and that, that, that that's really all that matters, and that being a part of a, of a community of faith, of a local congregation, that will uh, nurture and stand for the things that uh, that Christ would have us to stand for, and helping the poor, and nurturing those who are uh, younger in the faith, and, and building up, uh, building one another up. That's been sort of diminished, and so we have we have looked to baptism and to the church as very very important. Uh, in many cases, churches that would be classified more as evangelical, and many of their theologians, many evangelical theologians, I should say, would say the same thing, that ecclesiology, the focus on the church and the importance of the church, the role of the church in Christian life, has not been very strong. Hmm. I think that's changing in some some important ways. But So the, the dedication to Scripture, the focus on Baptism is that key, key place where God actually does something, that there's something that happens that's beyond a physical act, that, that where God does something to bring us into, in a special way, a way that's not happened before, a relationship with, with Him and with the body of Christ and the church itself. And I guess you can say 
the importance of the Lord's Supper is another piece that's characteristic of our churches pretty much globally. Uh, we have tended to, as Campbell said in some of the early articles that he wrote in the 18, uh, tw- 1830s, that the, the Lord's Supper was something that was powerful to bring people into relationship with one another and with God, and that it was not simply an intellectual activity. Yes, it, we did it the right way. We, we, we looked to Scripture to, to find out how it was to be done and how it was to be understood. But one of the things that he writes, uh, he does a, a book in the uh, 1830s called, generally it's called the, uh, the Christian System. And a lot of that book talks about baptism. And a lot of it is, is detailed and intellectual discussion. But there's this one section of the Christian system where he describes a, a communion service, a Lord's Supper service. And it's just absolutely moving. And um, it just it almost moves me to tears every time I read it because he talks about what it means as you turn to the person next to you and you hand them the elements. It's as, it's as if you were saying... You know, we are we're brought together in, in one body. We're forgiven of our sins together, and this is this is the the work of Christ in in us together to form this this community. I think those are some of the key pieces that really are characteristic. I don't think that they're unique unique totally to us, uh, perhaps in the combination that we have put them in. But these are really strong emphases, I think, around the world. So I, I actually find that very sort of ironic because I think the folks that I would talk to most commonly would not use those things to describe the churches of Christ. <laughs> and I think um, I think it's really interesting that you have, you have these things sort of informed by history um, and your study of it that seem very different from what they would say. So could you say a little bit about the sort of discrepancy between maybe – what you just described as being really close to the churches of Christ and what you might hear from someone who's gone to a church of Christ for 20 or 30 or 40 years. Yeah. The, um, I think one of the things you have to remember is first of all, because we are so congregational, there is a wide variety of experiences, uh, people who have been part of churches of Christ and who have, um, Maybe have left churches of Christ, maybe still in churches of Christ, but um, and and so, you know, I'm not sure who 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 you would have talked to, <laughs> but I think, I think if I were to talk to somebody in the town that I grew up in in North Alabama who was not who was not part of churches of Christ but knew something of us, I would think that they might say number one, um, at the corporate level. These are the people who think they're the only ones going to heaven. Hmm. Uh, these are the people who don't use instrumental music in their worship. Now, that's not uniformly true anymore, but, but that would have been pretty much a, a major marker of churches of Christ in years past. And, and for many, it is even still today, though a, a number of churches of Christ are, are not. That, that, that's not a, an issue at all. Um, and so... You know, they would have certain kind of impressions when you're thinking about churches of Christ as a whole or the church of Christ there on the corner that they know that's across the street from the Baptist church and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. Um, 
But when you start talking to the same people about individuals that they know who are members of Churches of Christ, for the most part, they would have said, oh, yeah, I know so-and-so. He's just, you know, he's salt of the earth, greatest person, helps me out all the time, really think a lot of him. Whereas if they were back home, I mean, on both sides of it, I guess you'd say, they would be saying things about the the imperfection, the mm. even the illegitimacy of the other person's beliefs and practices, and so you've got um, you've got a large a large spectrum of understandings of what what churches of Christ are by people inside the churches of Christ and people outside the churches of Christ. Mm-hmm. I think that in recent years, and it, again, it depends on where you are and the, the the nature of the congregation that you're affiliated with. Um, there has been a much more, uh, I think there's been a, a much more open sense that, that people who are struggling to follow Christ, to be the kind of people God would have us to be, to serve others in ways that Christ would have us serve others, uh, that we're all in this together, so to speak, and that there's, there are ways that, um, that we ought to be working together. Now, I've been involved for a long time also in efforts toward Christian unity, both within the larger Stone Campbell movement because of the divisions that we've had within our own movement, our churches, as well as in the larger church community uh, as part of the faith and order work of the National Council of Churches. And so I think that there's a sense... I don't know. I'm not sure how to say this, but I think that there is a sense that some of the old exclusivist attitudes and ideas, the old sectarian exclusivist ideas that we've had in the past, quote, we're the only ones that are going to heaven, which, by the way, that's not unique to us. There are other groups who think this, have thought the same thing and may, may still think the same thing, too. But I think a lot of that has been mitigated. And I'm I'm. I'm thinking that there are a lot of reasons for that. Sometimes it's just the weariness on the part of some people uh, at the at the attitudes that were so exclusionary and so negative. Uh, sometimes it's a it's a matter of having actually studied our own history mm. and have come to understand a little bit better why we actually do and say certain things the way we do. Uh, even how how we got this this notion that uh, only people in our churches are legitimately following Christ, so there's a history behind all of that. And when you, one of the things that can come from studying church history, and it's one of the reasons I think that I went into it, is that it can produce a humility that I think is really really important and key to being uh, a follower of Christ. Now. The fact of the matter is, uh, you, we are human beings and we have to be somewhere. Okay, right. We have to be somewhere. And I'm grateful for having been raised and, and formed in my faith by the context in which I, I brought, was brought up in Churches of Christ. I, as a church historian, and the, you know, have, having learned a lot and having been able to... Um, 
evaluate and critically analyze some of the things that have happened to us, some of the ways that churches of Christ and my own faith have been shaped, I don't have to do this uncritically. And again, I'm not, by uncritically, I'm not talking about, you know, just being down on, on everything. But there, there are parts of our heritage that we needed to look at and to say, that's not right. Well, and I'm curious about what, um, as you've had an opportunity to kind of do this with your life's work as a scholar, um, how how would how would somebody kind of on the ground as a layperson or as a minister in the Churches of Christ sort of more meaningfully engage with their own history, especially mm. in the context of us being a little bit, let's say, reticent to. Uh, to necessarily do a deep dive on on where our traditions come from, or, or even sort of hesitant to use the word tradition in some cases. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I mean, and let me tell you that that attitude itself actually we come by honestly in the sense that that's part of our heritage. Mm. There is an awe historical that is. There's an attitude that has been very powerful, I think, in certain streams of our movement that in, in, from the earliest days and down to today, uh, that we really don't, uh, that church history is, is irrelevant. That what happened in the Restoration Movement with Stone, the Campbells, and others who were working with them and those who came afterward in the churches of this movement, and particularly one part of the movement, whichever part you ended up in, um, that that's all irrelevant, that w- what was done was th- that we restored the ancient gospel and order. We restored mm. the ancient church. And that everything in church history is basically a story of apostasy, of people who <laughs> left the truth, <laughs> uh, of people who were not faithful, and therefore, that's, that's not us. You know, we got it right. Well, of course, that's not, that's not true. Uh, there's a continuity and Christ said himself on the, on the rock, on the truth of his, his divinity, he would build his church and the gates of hell would never prevail against it. Okay? So the, the church was not, the church has always been here. Sometimes it may have had more problems in this area or that area. The church is a human institution in one sense. It's a divine institution because God is there, God's Spirit is working, and it's, it's going to be there because of Christ's promise. But uh, it's also a human institution because we make it up. And our, our understandings and our actions and, and our words, even in the best of intentions, sometimes go against the gospel, the good news of Christ. And, and so... Uh, you know, I'm not. I'm not condoning anything that happened in the past. I'm not trying <laughs> to say that 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 there was no, there were no problems. That's not true. There were problems all through the history of the church, and we have those problems now. One of the greatest ones in the white church in America, especially, is is white supremacist white supremacist ideas that I think that many times we're not even fully aware are there, and yet we act and operate in those kinds of ways. Well, these are things that we've got to look at. We've got to say, that's not according to Christ's will. It's not the mm. gospel. And so um, I, I'm not sure if that's that's really hitting on what you were trying yeah. to get at. No, I, I think that you're, you're touching on it for sure. I think 
I, I'm sensing a sort of tension within our movement about how hard it is for us to kind of look more critically at our own history because we we don't we believe that something was restored rather than th- than this being sort of an addition or a new thing or an innovation or or however we want to we want to parse that out. Um, mm. And I and I'm I guess I'm I'm. I think the struggle that I find in a lot of folks in our tradition, and I don't, obviously I can only speak from from my position um, and the conversations that I've had, but there is a sense that uh, that tension of being unable to look at our history because we kind of don't believe that it's there is sort of starting to come back and 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 bite us a bit as mm-hmm. we as we try to sort of work out okay. I, I I am, maybe some of us are getting to the point where we can say, I am a particular maybe flavor of Christianity, or I can see now a little bit where my movement comes from and where I I get sort of some of these ideas and practices from. But how do I call myself Church of Christ and 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 say that honestly in acknowledgement of the tradition when the tradition itself sort of tries to not acknowledge the existence of itself. Does that make any sense? (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I think, again, what's so fascinating to me as a church historian is to see that that attitude coming up in in a number of places uh, throughout the history of Christianity, especially since the Enlightenment. But this idea, um, well, one time (laughs) there was a person who was just so frustrated at this attitude that we, we, we don't have a history. We're just simply restoring the New Testament church. We're just simply going by what the scriptures say. And um, we're so frustrated at that attitude and, and the, uh, the denial of the reality of, of being human and being connected and having a history that he said, yeah, we're, we're one of the, the largest non-denominational or anti-denominational denominations in the United States. (laughs) Well, and I I think that makes a lot of sense, but I, I I also, I don't know. I feel, I feel sort of, sort of trapped as a, as a, as someone who's been adopted into this Mm. tradition and, and found a lot of life in it. It feels like in order for me to acknowledge where I'm getting a lot of this this spiritual life and this this community, I also have to sort of directly resist this sort of a historical impulse that is also part of what is bringing <laughs> me life. Like it's very circular and it gets very strange. And I feel like a lot of people are trying to, yeah. to parse that out. And some people, I imagine, get very frustrated as you describe and just sort of throw their hands up and say whatever and either move on or just stop thinking about it altogether. Yeah, and I, I understand what you're saying. I really do, especially as you begin to understand more of the history and, and the thought of the Stone Campbell Restoration Movement. I, I would say this, however, that awe historical or historically denying stream is not universal, never has been. Alexander Campbell himself, he was, he was a student of church history, new church history. And some of the things that he says uh, really are so, are so brilliant and, and, and reflect in many ways a deep understanding of how we have been shaped over a long period of time. 
and yet some of the seeds of that ahistorical um, attitude do show up fairly early in the movement. But I would have to say that that is not an essential part of this movement. That's, that's my opinion. That's my judgment. I think it has been historically there a lot, but I don't think that there has ever been a time when there weren't significant leaders in this movement, in this, this part of the movement, Churches of Christ, who were not historically aware that they did have a sense of the connectedness. And while they were very, uh, they were, they were very proud, I guess you would say, of what those early leaders like Campbell, Stone, and many others did, they, they also knew that those people themselves rested on the shoulders of others who had gone before. And that that, that went back and back and back in a long progression of, of teachers and leaders and people who had nurtured them and taught them and had led them uh, in their faith and shaped them. So I would say that while, like a number of other groups, even the American, the American people as a whole, the American uh, ethos as a whole, is uh, sometimes very ahistorical in the sense that, you know, we created this new thing in America. And it's true, there are a lot of things that were, were fairly unique uh, in, in America. But this pristine, perfect um, new creation that comes out in America, well, some of that same idea gets picked up in some of the religious groups and certainly by us. Mm. But I don't think that it is an essential part. That's my opinion of who we really are as part of Churches of Christ. But I can see your, your dilemma, because mm. if it were, then, then how can you acknowledge that we do have a history, that we have been shaped by a long chain that, go, that goes way back uh, to the very beginning of Christianity, to the very beginning of, uh, of God's people in some ways, you could say. Uh, how, how do you acknowledge that and also acknowledge that who we really are is bound up in this ah historical view. I don't think that it is. Mm. Well, and I think that brings me to uh, one of the last things I wanted to ask you about, which you've mentioned already a little bit, is um, you, you've been really involved in some, some pretty big ecumenical work uh, globally. And so I'd, I'd like to hear just a little bit about that, but I'd also like to hear it in the context of as sort of inheritors of this this particular tradition as Church of Christ people, how what is what does the future look like for us as we engage with a sort of global and 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 very diverse Christianity? Hmm. Well, that's a really it's a it's a good question, but it's also a difficult question. I think that another one of those those uh, conundrums it was that there was sort of a deep sense uh, in our early movement that what we were trying to do was to bring about the unity of all Christians, right? Mm. Now, some, some part of that was, was based on the idea that we restore the doctrines and practices and uh, as the ancient church had them, the ancient gospel in order. And then everybody, everybody else who's a Christian will look and say, oh, wow, yeah, why didn't we see that before? And would all accept that and, and would do that, and that would bring about Christian unity. 
again, that's that's based on a, an assumption that what certifies one as a Christian is ex- very precisely articulated doctrinal statements, propositions, and a set of practices that uh, are done in a precise, particularly pri- precise way, according to those doctrinal propositions. Well, doctrine and and uh, practice is very, very important. There's no question about that. But we have to understand how we've even approached the scriptures. I think church history has helped me understand that what certifies one as a Christian, and Alexander Campbell says that in his best days, is not being able to state a precise list of propositions and, and carry out a precise list of, uh, of practices, but it's being transformed into, into the image of Christ. And, and Campbell says that. Campbell knows that. And so the doctrines and the practices in some ways are means to an end and not the end themselves. They are not the point the point is being transformed into the image of Christ. And I think that uh, Campbell's statement, when he's, when he's talking about very one of the things that's most important to him, and that's baptism, he makes the statement that um, it, is the, it is the image of Christ in the other that the Christian looks for and loves, and not conforming to any commandment, even one as important as baptism. Now he's not he's not soft on baptism at all. He's very very strong. And yet he knows that the point of it all is being transformed into the image of Christ. And I think that being in in, in communication with, in conversation with, in worship with, in work with Christians who have other heritages, people who are different part of different to histories you begin to see that the caricatures that we've often kind of constructed, consciously or unconsciously, of people who are in other religious groups of being um, duplicitous, they really should know better, and they're, they're practicing false things, they're teaching false doctrine. Um, you begin to start saying, okay, there's a reason behind most of those things that they teach, just like there is behind what we teach and the way that we understand them. And it's not because they're just intentionally wicked. And it's not because we're intentionally wicked, because we have a certain set of understandings. And so, as more and more people in churches of Christ begin to understand, again, that we're in this together, that Christians need each other, um, I'm not sure, I'm not sure if, 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 how to say this exactly. Leroy Garrett, who was an early, he's a historian of the Stone Campbell movement, he passed away just a few years ago. He used to say, what we really want is what, what Barton Stone said in the last will and testament of Springfield Presbytery, that we will that this body die, cease to exist, and sink into union with the body of Christ at large. Well, you know, each religious tradition, each religious body, each church including churches of Christ, have something to say, have something to contribute to the larger conversation. And so it's not that we want to just say, let's just obliterate everything and 
and become some sort of generic Christians, uh, so to speak, because each tradition, each history, each group that has a, a heritage has insights and contributions that enrich the, the whole, that we need to hear from each other. It doesn't mean that we necessarily uh, next week need to just you know, shut down all of our different places of worship. It's not going to happen. Uh, in some ways, I wish it would and could. <laughs> but, but to be able to find ways of, of relating to in as deep a ways as we can with other followers of Christ, to learn from each other, to work together in the name of Christ for the, for the poor, the marginalized. In the case of things that are going on in the United States today, those uh, pe people of color in the United States who have suffered for 400 years under the yoke of white supremacist uh, ideas, the idea that, that white people and white civilization is superior to all others, uh, I think those are things that we need each other for. And so as churches of Christ begin to move more into those kinds of ways of relating to and being with others, do we, do we disappear? I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think that, that it's a, a major goal as such to keep churches of Christ alive as a, as a body, as a recognizable body. I think what the point is, is trying to be what God wants us to be, what Christ would have us to be in, in carrying out his will on earth as it is in heaven and reflecting his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Well, and I, and I find that to be really, that's a really powerful statement because I don't think it's, I don't think it's a knee-jerk reaction or part of our intuition to think in the way that maybe Barton Stone had thought in that way, that this body serves a purpose beyond itself, even so far as to disappear, dissolve, or become indistinguishable when that cause mm. is, is complete. And I, and I, I imagine I'm probably going to have to chew on that <laughs> for a little <laughs> bit longer. But as, as we wrap up, I, I, wanna, I wanted to ask you... In terms of how we engage with our history, how do you see the role of, of education of, of not just ministers, but also uh, a lay, lay people from a sort of, obviously we're, we're talking about this in the context of both being people associated with Abilene Christian University, which is a Church of Christ founded uh, university. And I would, I would love to hear a little bit about what you think places like this have a role in this process? Mm. Eric, I think that you know because of your own experience as being a student and now working for uh, the Graduate School of Theology, that places like that where uh, future ministers, current ministers, members who are not ministers but who are leaders in other kinds of ways are trained, that one of the key pieces is the learning of church history to raise that sense of historical consciousness. And it's not just a historical consciousness in the, in a generic sense or a secular sense. I call it a spiritual historical consciousness that God works in history and has continued to work in history. And to be able to learn some of that story, to be sensitive to it. So not that you have to know every detail 
uh, of every document, every every year that ha- what happened in those years, every person. But some of that is really important to get a sense that there is a continuity. And I think it produces, as I said earlier, number one, a humility to see how imperfect people have continued to strive to follow Christ in lots of different ways. But it also creates a sense, again, of being in the same uh, boat. We're in, the, we're in this together as people who are striving to follow Christ. And so for me, church history was the entree to work on Christian unity. I mean, obviously, we had, I had a great uh, subject in, in Stone Campbell Restoration history because of the emphasis on Christian unity that was so much a part of that movement. Uh, in many ways, through through its whole history, but I think it would gives uh, gives us all a sense of that, and and a sense of why things have developed. So I would really encourage churches, uh, even at the the high school level, I teach to, would teach church history. Some people will say, "Oh, that's terrible." <laughs> uh, you know, it's just sort of like the my first impressions of what history was all about. Anyway, this, oh no, that'll kill the Sunday school program. <laughs> but um, but there are resources out there, videos and, and books that are uh, easily accessible to to anyone, um, and there there there's a bibliography that could be supplied if people were interested in that. But I think, I think it's just so much a part. I think church history is really part of our spiritual maturity. Mm. And that it's not simply, uh, it may be have a few interesting anecdotes or stories. I think it's much, much more than that. I actually think it's part of our spiritual formation. And that it's, it, if people don't have a sense of that, at least at some level, that there's a gap, that there's a, level of maturity that that is much more difficult to reach i think that that gives you such a sense of the work of god and the work of imperfect humans as they have have tried to follow god understand god and follow god and treat people and how they failed in many cases mm-hmm. um i don't believe that mm, that you simply learn history and therefore you're going to be better i don't think that that's the case I think that you have to have a a transformed heart and a desire to follow Christ. But I think that if you have that, that that, that church history is really, really an important piece of your spiritual maturity. Yeah, I have found that to be true in my life, most certainly. (laughs) Um, So my final question for you, Dr. Foster, is uh, do you think seminary is scary? (laughs) Well, um, I have a new graduate assistant uh, this this semester, and uh, so I looked at his 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 classes that he was taking, the schedule that he has of, of classes, and I thought, wow! And I said it to him, I said, "You've got a pretty hefty schedule with these uh, these professors and these classes." Uh, and he said, "Yeah, I've heard that other folks say the same thing, <laughs> but the fact is, every one of the professors at the GST." People that I know, I love, and they're colleagues of mine, care about their students. They're not going to just simply throw out facts and then move on. They see it as a ministry. They see it as something that's formative. And I think that sometimes it can be scary because 
especially if you've not studied theology or biblical subjects at this level, at the graduate level, it sometimes can be very intimidating or uh, at, at some level. On the other hand, I think that once someone gets into this, and I'm sure this is true in most seminaries, you'll find that the people that have given themselves teachers, has, they see it as a ministry and they see it as a place where they can love and nurture students. And uh, I really think that while there may be in a, a little bit of trepidation, maybe it's scary at some level, that once you're in it, you're going to find that this is one of the best decisions you ever made. Well, Dr. Foster, I thank you so much for taking t- your time to chat with us. Um, I know I'll definitely be thinking about a lot of the insights that you've given here today. Well, thank you for inviting me. When I was doing clinical pastoral education, I found myself in a position where I was around a lot of people who had no idea who the Churches of Christ were, and I had to explain to them who we were, where we were from, and what we do. Through that process, I found that my tradition actually has a lot to offer to those who are outside of it, and I think this is true for all of us. We all have traditions and stories and experiences that define who we are. And knowing more about our traditions should produce a sense of steadiness and humility, not superiority. But we do have to know about our traditions first. When we start to get a sense of this, we also start getting a sense of how we are all contributing to something much larger than ourselves. Something that Barton Stone might call unity within the body of Christ at large. Something that I imagine is worth contributing to. Thank you for listening to this episode of Seminary Isn't Scary. Seminary Isn't Scary is a creation of the Graduate School of Theology at Abilene Christian University. Our producer is Zane Goggins, and a special thanks to KACU for providing the studio space and all of this wonderful equipment. I'm your host, Eric Massey. Thanks for listening. <laughs>